0: Welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland, and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlockery. So today back joining us for a a second bite... (laughs) And we've got Pamela Barker and Duncan MacDonald. These guys are both paramedics based out of the Special Operations Response Team on the West in Glasgow. Uh, they're both involved with instructing different aspects of the SORT team courses, including specifically some other bits of CBRN, so Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear Management. And it's that we're going to kind of pick their brains on today. Guys, thanks very much for coming back on to join us. Thank you.
1: Hi, Dave, no problem.
0: For your average basics responder, tucked away in rural Scotland, CBRN seems like a very alien topic, I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, I would hope so. If it's not, then there's something going far wrong. I think from our perspective, we can uh, deal with two sides to this, the CBRN being the deliberate act, which the police would call a CBRN event, And then uh, hazmat, so it's an accidental discharge of chemicals, which we tend to come in conjunction with more than what we'd say a CBRN incident. So just to unpick CBRN, if
0: we go through it chunk by chunk, what sort of things are we talking about in terms of a chemical
2: incident? So, I mean, from a a chemical, exposures can vary depending on what we're playing with. It could be cyanide, hydrogen, sulphide, things like that. Um, We could be using from a chemical perspective. Again, biological toxins that we could be looking at being released again through a weaponized system. Radiological resources from hospitals, ex- World War Two munitions and whatnot, and nuclear, as it says on the tin. Hopefully, not coming in contact with them, and then obviously we eat the air, which is the explosive device, which should could uh, be the trigger or detonation device with these things. That's a good point. I kind of shorthanded to
0: CBRN, but I think technically it's now CBRNE for explosives.
2: Yeah. So again, with the explosive side of things, through sort, get a bit of initial training and chat from EOD based in the Central Belt, and they'll chat to us on what they would expect from us if they were to come out to an explosive event, and again, if there's chemicals involved with that as well, what we will offer to them with regards protection, mitigation, and medical cover.
0: And EOD for folks who aren't involved in this
2: is the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Teams. Yeah, I think in the west, we've got them based at Fast Lane, and the east, it's through Edinburgh. I think it's Drake Corner it out of.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure I'd fancy being involved in, in EOD in Fastlane. Lane. That seems like it's going to be a, a bit of a scary place to work.
2: Yeah, I would say so. If something goes wrong, I think we'll lose the best part of half of Scotland in that one. <laughs> OK, so
0: realistically, away from the urban centres, one would have expected that the risk of deliberate exposure is going to be pretty limited so maybe it it makes more sense to focus on some of the hazmat side of things um what sort of things do you look for
2: when you're wondering if hazmat is involved in an incident again this is coming down to a scene size up and it would be probably information from the initial responders on scene and we look at something called the, the one two three plus approach where is there one patient down two patients down, still respond with care, three patients down or three patients down with signs of exposure. You're looking at retreating, going uphill, upwind, closing your vents and your windows and trying to give as much information across the net as possible with regards to what you're seeing, if it's chemical drums that are there. And we can look at what plans you put in place from a, a kind of CVRN perspective. What might find from a, a, a rural perspective would be The use of organophosphates, which they're going to use for pesticides and farms and things like that. So this might be an intentional chemical exposure where someone has done this deliberate act, commit suicide. In that case, a lot of the jobs we go to with regards that, they're normally putting a sign up to warn responders that this has happened. And sometimes the chemical they've used or the chemical they've used is in sight. So that might be the things we're looking for. From a more industrial aspect, we'd be looking at the recent jobs that were down south in Hart. They were working with different acid-based chemicals and one of the bungs had gone, and they were working with fire and rescue on that one and how to mitigate that and, again, the medical support they would give on the back of that.
1: I think listening to people who work in these places are beneficial as well. So, for example, if it's been an accident in a factory, A lot of the time our resources for information is the people who work there themselves because they're very well informed of the types of chemicals that they use in their own work environment.
0: Yeah, a lot of these guys have got some pretty specialist knowledge, particularly around, as you say, factories and industrial environments. I just want to come back and dig into the organophosphate thing a little bit because it's it's an area I know that there is a lot of potential for crossover with basics. What's the classical presentation of
2: organophosphate type poisoning? Well, we can look at from a, an organophosphate. You're looking at the pupils might be pinpoint. The skin they might be sweaty, cyanosed. Respirations, bronchoconstriction, rapid shallow wheezing. Secretions might be excessive salivation and a bronchosecretions. secretions. What we tend to use now and is a very good tool is from the National Ambulance Resilience Unit, NARU, which is down south. They use a the crest tool, which works on something about conscious respirations eyes secretions skin and depending on what you are seeing the presentation with it can guide you as to what this might be from nerve agents to blistering agents to cyanide to opioids to atropine to sepsis to heat stroke it's a very good tool and i would point something in the direction for that if they're going to use it
1: i think in looking at your environment And like Duncan said, your step one, two, three plus is important as well, because a lot of the time symptoms all mirror other conditions.
0: It's an interesting point. And the one, two, three plus approach is worthwhile because one person having a, a problem is kind of fine. But once you get to three people, actually three people having the same medical presentation at the same time is stretching the bounds of credibility.
1: Yeah, and I think you've got to look at, or the things we might be looking at is, how is that happening? Is it through the air? Is it something physical? You know, what type of chemical or nerve agent or whatever's involved? We need to fathom out how it's actually spreading as such. It might even be that something in the atmosphere is depleted, so there might not be enough oxygen as such. That might be the cause of a part of environment, say, like in a silo or something like that as opposed to an actual chemical nerve agent that's going around, which is why we carry detectors that can tell us what's in the atmosphere if it was something we need to be aware of.
0: And those silo jobs, unfortunately, seem to happen not infrequently, where somebody succumbs to methane or to another gas in a silo and then somebody else goes in to help them and ends up suffering the same fate.
1: I I think that's the sort of more classic example is that there's nothing obvious that you would see so if one person goes down somebody might try and help them and, and then unfortunately they suffer the same fate and it might even be the third person comes along and tries to help the other two and that's when you, you've got to take a step back instead of rushing into a scene.
2: Yeah I right. think part of our own space was giving us a lot more awareness about layering of where chemicals such especially sulphur dioxide That might be for sewers and things like that. And as soon as you put the gas monitor down, it's fine. But because that sits at a lower level and you might break the water, that then brings it to the surface, aerates it within that confined space, and that's when the person goes down. So initially, things might be fine, but that can change very quickly. So the equipment on gas monitoring and awareness in these situations is key. So you've mentioned
0: some of the things that you're looking for on a specific patient basis. What about more generally things around the scene? What sort of things are you interested in, in terms of trying to
2: understand the risk before you guys get there? Yeah, so if you're approaching a scene, you're looking at colours for what's the foliage like? Is it green, brown? Is there dead animals around about it? We're looking at ground sign that basically gets your spidey senses tingling and makes you think, well, that's not right. That's out of place to what it would normally be. Trying to get this awareness up. That would be what you're looking for originally approaching the scene. This is why it's always key when we're doing this dynamic risk assessment with crew patient safety on the way to jobs or when you approach these jobs that you are taking this information in and it's not rushing and deal with the situation. It's taking that time to get the global overview, scene size up and pick up on these wee points that points around about you before moving into these situations. I think, you know, obviously
0: not being at all involved in the events, but the stuff that happened around Salisbury in terms of the Novichok poisoning was a bit of a wake-up call that actually this isn't just City Centre London and there is always a potential for something nasty to be happening in those odd
2: presentations of disease. Yeah, and I think uh, going on that the presentation in Salisbury, I think if you were to get anybody and any sort of service and say you had two persons fitting in a park, an open area that they would be approaching with caution, but thinking it's maybe alcohol or drug related as opposed to a nerve agent. But on the back of that one, the pickup that the the hospitals had down in that area for the second case that came in, because that had happened already and these people presented in the manner they did, they picked up a lot quicker in the second case and exactly what it was and nailed down on it very quickly as opposed to what they did the first one because it's not something you come across in rural Britain. So you mentioned some of the
0: things in terms of actions on for first responders. So shutting your windows and getting upwind and uphill. And I'm guessing this is to try
2: and minimise your exposure. Yes. Having been to a few jobs locally, um, fire jobs where chemical vats have been on fire. We're looking at where the smoke plumes go in, wind direction, resources and where we can sort of marshal these resources up. That's always key because you're looking at looking after your responders. As I said that crew, patient safety has got to be hammered home at all times, and make sure that you're safe because if you're not, who's going to deal with the patients?
1: Yeah, it might even be to prevent a further major incident. So if something's happened at an industrial place, such as a factory, and that's actually going in the direction of a community where there's maybe care homes or a lot of flats, houses, and such that might lead to a mass evacuation just down from the one area of incident. So we have to look at more further outspread rather than just what's happening at the time.
0: And presumably involved in this scene safety aspect is going to be trying to get other bystanders, other people who might be involved
2: to move away from the area. Anything else we should be telling them to do? Yeah, I think when you're looking at, depending on the exposure you've got, whether it's a, a chemical on the person or the chemical environment they're in, we can run a remove, remove, remove campaign in the ambulance service where it's remove the person from the contaminant, remove the contaminated clothing, and remove any further contaminant from the person. This itself, using a dry towel rather than wet uh, deco and dabbing down using dry towels, this reduces the chemical on them or the chemical exposure to around about about 90% from them. So this remove, remove, remove campaign goes out through the ambulance service I've be putting that out across there because I think it's a very, very key bit of, sort of training and you know action with regards to these jobs.
1: And that'll prevent contamination to other crews and maybe even receiving hospitals as well.
0: And presumably as a part of that, it's going to be as much PPE as you can muster to protect yourself during that process. <laughs> yeah.
2: Again, we work on the gold standard scale for PPE for a chem job like that. Or uh, for us would be Gas-tight and self-contained breathing apparatus. That basically, you're protected from everything. Um, we step down from that and we've got PRPS, which is Power respiratory Protection Suits. And they work by filtering out the air around about and giving us purified air within the suits. You've got an hour's working time in these suits at one point. These suits are the gold standard for NHS, I will add, because the suits are brilliant and they're used in the hospitals for the decon cells within the hospitals. And the staff within these units are trained and regularly trained in the kit. Something's coming refresh with us as well, and these suits are brilliant. We take another step down from that one again, and we're looking at what we call quick-dawn. This is now going to be superseded with some new kit that's coming in. Um, however, the quick-dawn kit works very similar to the CBRN kit you'd get in the military. And it's married up with what we call an FM-12 respirator, face mask-12 respirator. We've managed 12 of these, and this one seems to be the best one so far. It works very well. works off a one canister, similar to what you see the military wearing a number of years back, and it filters out most of your video nasties, the same as we would get for uh, filters in the PRPS suits. That would be a three top end grades with regards protection from CBRN jobs, CBRN environments.
0: I mean, it's quite a hefty PPE and safety requirements, and it's, it's a long way beyond what your average basics response is going to be bringing in their sandpiper bag is there anything else that we can do whilst we're waiting for you guys to rock up with the specialist kit in terms of thinking about cordons in terms of thinking about options for treatment
2: yeah as i said that's setting up that initial operational response which is that remove 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 get the patients out from the environment and then start getting them as best you can undressed and dabbed off of chemicals this initial response is key Game with the cordons, not let anybody else into these areas. Again, make the cordons at a reasonable size that you can manage at the time. Obviously, most of the big jobs we go to, police are managing their cordons, and they will get it to a size where it's manageable for them. You're looking at yourself and you keep them safe as well, because if you go down, we're coming to somebody for information, and you be that person will come for information. So it's making sure you're safe and you're seeing safety as paramount.
1: Yeah, I think reassuring the patient in these sort of situations is important as well because they need to understand that we are here to treat you and we are helping you even though we're keeping you maybe 100 metres away from us. You know, that initial communication, like, could you just stay over there, please? right, this is what we're going to do and a simple explanation of what is expected from them because their first instinct might be to run towards you and that's what you're going to want to stop until we assess the scene and to see exactly what we're dealing with and try and, like Duncan says, remove the patients from the environment, remove the clothes from them to remove contamination and then blue roll or anything they can dab themselves with. So good communication and instructions to the patient is quite important as well, because I think their first instinct is going to run towards you for help.
0: Fantastic. No, that's really useful. We've looked a lot at the hazmat stuff. I just want to come back to the explosives bit. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of the vehicles that we see cutting about in Scotland, and particularly on the kind of main trunk roads, carry a variety of commercials, Chemicals and uh, fuels that are pretty explosive. And every so often, these things get involved in RTCs. Are there any specifics in terms of how we should be approaching vehicles that have got those indecipherable hazmat signs on them?
1: Shouldn't be, maybe. I
0: assume, with great
2: caution. think with these jobs, it's the risk reward just kind of up what can I do for these patients with this going wrong as well? And getting that initial scene size up and passing this information back to control. And they can then do the reach back, whether it's to us or a further reach back to Wrighton Down South, which is the CBRN centre. And they'll give you exact information on what's going to happen, what the chances of this going boom is. And if it does go boom, how big a cord we're putting in on this job? And that would then help you make the decisions up and how you want to proceed with that job
0: it's reassuring to know that not everybody has to learn the entire hazmat directory Um,
2: (laughs) that there's people you can ring up who can can yeah I think working with other agencies the fire service they have dim teams detection identification and monitoring teams are fantastic especially we've got them here the central belt are very good but they're mobile the units come out and they will break the chemical right down to exactly what it is and what we need to do to mitigate it. There's also things like Talkspace and Wiser, which when we go into those sites as well, we read the chemical sign, we can input it onto this Talkspace and Wiser, and again, it'll flag up what the chemical is and what we need to do in the meantime until we can get proper support. If we can't get that reach back, like I said, to our CBRN TAC advisor or back to writing and the CBRN centre. Yeah, so
1: there's always someone that we can call advice or if you're in a rural crew and you're phoning us for advice it might be that we might need to wait for like a scientist or something like that from another agency to help us out so I think approach with caution and get as much details and if you're not sure just ask even if it's phone and sort or control and we can either help through Talkspace or another agency if we need to.
0: I'm glad you've mentioned both Talkspace and Wiser. Toxbase certainly I'm familiar with from a secondary care perspective, but Wiser, I think I'm right in saying, is an American system that helps to classify under yeah, substances. Yeah, it's very good,
2: getting onto to that one and using it. As paramedics, as healthcare providers, we're given a box of tools, and it's depending on the tool and the job that we bring out. Again, for these jobs, that would be one of the tools I bring out the buy to get myself as much information and give myself as good a picture of what I'm dealing with as possible. With all these podcasts we've been getting folks to give three top tips
0: for, for basic responders. What would your suggestions be when dealing with these C B R N E and and hazmat type of well, things? I think
2: the, the steps one, two, three plus approach with the kind uh, uphill, upwind, scene safety paramount because if, if we lose the responder, we're losing our initial recce or initial eyes and ears on the incident itself. From a management perspective, the remove, remove, remove campaign and looking at getting that out and rolled out across everyone. And then from the diagnosis point, I would be saying tie in with the NARU and the Crest tool. It's quite good. You can get it. And I carry it as a pocket-sized version in uh, an e 5 pocket bowl that I've got, which keeps me up to date with any changes to any chemicals that would be in it. And I keep that in my pocket with regards to toxic triage and that as well. So the Naru Crest tool, I think's a very good thing to be using. Fantastic. And I guess on top of all of that, we've got you guys on the end of the phone
0: for phone yeah, a friend as well.
2: Hopefully we can get you that million pounds you know, when we phone a friend.
0: <laughs> Listen, thanks very much. I know it's a, a sensitive topic, but also a, a very important topic. And in terms of responder safety, probably one of the biggest untalked about topics.
1: Yeah, I think if something doesn't feel right to you, then be cautious. Approach with caution and phone a friend, just like we said. I think it's important if something doesn't feel right just to run in because ultimately that's just going to create more patience and a larger response and more complications for the job. And I don't think anyone should be feeling stupid even just for asking. Somebody shouldn't think, oh, I should definitely know this. I should know what that chemical side means. I should know what's involved here. Definitely not. Just be
2: cautious and phone for help. Yeah, I think it's a difficult subject to, to deal with because we don't deal with it very often. And I think as healthcare providers, we're there to help people. And it's alien to us and we can't go forward and help people. But by not going forward, you are helping people. And that's when you get the, the information required and you're giving the, the commands out for the Remove, Remove, Remove campaign. And you're getting the, the information with regards to what chemicals it is. and yeah. As a healthcare provider, you can't be an expert in everything. So having checklists, having these aid memoirs on you is very, very beneficial.
1: It means you can be more prepared for the scene as well. On the way there, we might be thinking, right, we know what suit we need. We know exactly what we're responding to. So just get a situational awareness of the scene is definitely beneficial to us and everyone else.
0: That's really useful. And yeah, wise words thanks very much for coming on and sharing your expertise and with a bit of luck
2: we won't have to call you no, hopefully not i'll make sure it's a day we're off yeah make sure our team's not on that day. <laughs> thanks thanks for that.
1: Much, thank you
2: that's it
0: for this week if you have any comments or questions visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom join us next week for another podcast from basic scotland